0: us to pray. Turn to Luke chapter 16, which is where we'll be this morning. I'm Kenny, one of the elders here. If you're visiting with Grace or fairly new here and wondering, there's someone different up here every Sunday. It's by intention. We share the, the teaching and preaching here at Grace among a team. Uh, and, uh, and I'm one of those this morning. I get the privilege. But let's pray as we come to God's Word. Lord, well, we've sang a lot of truth truth this morning that uh, if we believe it and we uh, rest in it it can give us life and hope and uh, spurs us on to eager to be eager and zealous for good works so we we pray that you do that this morning Uh, Lord we acknowledge that where sin runs deep your grace is more And if we're really listening to Jesus' words this morning, uh, we're gonna be made aware of ways that sin runs deep, maybe even become aware of sin that we've not been aware of. And Lord, we need the reminder that there's more than enough grace to cover all that sin. And Lord, it's also true that without you, we fall apart. If we don't abide in you, we can do nothing. You're the one who guides our hearts. So I pray as we hear Jesus' instruction and guidance here in these verses this morning, that we'd have teachable hearts, we'd be open to correction, even rebuke. You'd make us repentant and grateful and humble and thankful to be your servants. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we've been saying this for weeks here in the Gospel of Luke, that where is Jesus headed right now in the Gospel of Luke? That's right, he has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's no longer traveling from t- village to village sort of around the whole area of Galilee and surrounding areas, but he, with this growing band of followers, 12 in particular whom he's named apostles, who will f- play a, s- a specific role after his death, resurrection, and ascension, are all with him on the road to Jerusalem. And if we remember back in chapter 9, um, He's headed to Jerusalem to accomplish his own exodus. Do you remember that line? In chapter 9, the transfiguration, Jesus went up on a mountaintop with Peter and James and John, and the glory of God sort of settled on this mountaintop and clouds, and and, and there was this experience where these three disciples got to see sort of the veil pulled back at Jesus' divine glory, and Moses and Elijah appeared, and it said, we're speaking with Jesus about what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, his exodus, his departure, We've been recently, in our reading plan at Grace, been reading through the book of Exodus and reminded of the first Exodus that Moses led. Um, And it had me thinking about words that Moses gave to the nation of Israel once they had left uh, Egypt and they were on their way to the land. And these words are in Deuteronomy 6. I want to read them here for a minute. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, but they weren't home yet. They were on the way to a land of promise to live as God's chosen people. And so after delivering the law to Moses, Moses tells the people this, "Uh, "'These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise.'" Why? Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Well, Here in Luke 17, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to accomplish his own exodus, and he knows what it's going to require of him. It's gonna require of him that he give his life as a ransom to bear the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin at the cross to redeem us out of slavery and bondage to sin and death and hell. And he knows that after that, he's gonna ascend to the Father and the Father's gonna pour the Holy Spirit out on his disciples, on these very people who are following him to Jerusalem and on and on to the disciples who will be made through their ministry And they're gonna be sent out to the ends of the earth through the Great Commission to take the land, not in battle with swords and spears, but with the word of God, the sword of the spirit, the good news of what Jesus has accomplished in a world that is still um, under the, the, the influence of the enemy. So as he's walking by the way with them to Jerusalem with this growing band of disciples, we need to hear these words as the master preparing his servants for the days ahead as they'll take up their crosses daily, deny themselves, and follow him. He's giving them instructions and guidance here to help them walk in holiness, to walk by faith, And to serve him with humble and joyful gratitude. Four things Jesus wants us to remember as we walk with him, by the way. Let's turn to Luke 17, 1 through 10. Jesus said to his disciples, so now in the last chapter, he's been speaking sometimes to Pharisees who are are sniping from the outside and then turning to his disciples, but here, the focus here is just his disciples. He says to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, oh, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done that which was our duty. All right, four things Jesus wants us to remember here as we walk with him, by the way. Very practical, but challenging. And the first one is this. Don't lead your brother or sister to to fall. Don't cause your brother or sister to stumble, to fall into sin or unbelief. Look how Jesus reasons. He starts very practically at verse one. He says, you've already got enough stumbling blocks as it is. He says, temptations to sin or stumbling blocks, pitfalls, as you follow me are sure to come. Because we live in a world with a spiritual enemy. Spiritual enemies. Peter warns in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, your adversary prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Ephesians 6, Paul warns us that uh, Satan has schemes. And in 2 Corinthians 2, he warns us so that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan or be ignorant of his designs. So these temptations are sure to come. But more than that, we continue to have this sin nature that won't be gone for good until Jesus returns. And it still tempts us from within every day. If you're a believer, you know this internal lurking tempter that's not gone when you trusted Christ. Galatians 5, Paul says, now we have these desires of the Spirit that God has given us we also have these desires of the flesh and they're opposed to one another. They're at war to keep us from doing the things we want to do. Paul wouldn't have told us in Colossians 3.5 to put to death what's earthly in us if there didn't remain an internal desire that pulls away from Christ towards sin. That's why we're urged in Hebrews 12.1 to lay aside sin which so easily entangles us and trips us up as we run with endurance the race that's set before us. There are enough stumbling blocks as there is. Temptations to sin are sure to come. So if that's the case, then Jesus says, don't be one yourself. Don't become a participant in that which would pull a brother or sister away from Christ, back towards sin. He says, woe to the one through whom temptation comes. And in verse two, woe to the one who might cause one of these little ones, one of my disciples, to sin or stumble. Don't add to the temptations that are already sure to come. I wanted an illustration that my boys would get. They're gonna be here in the second service. So hopefully this will get you as well as my boys in the second service, but don't make the race set before us like Super Mario Kart. All right, some of you already know where this might be going. My boys love playing Super Mario Kart. They love beating me at Super Mario Kart, which is why I don't usually play Super Mario Kart. But if you don't know what Super Mario Kart is, it's just a simple racing game. You are one of eight go-karts on a virtual track, racing against seven other opponents, and stumbling blocks are a major part of the game, right? For you to get across the finish line first, you can hurl turtles at carts that go past you and blast them off the side of the road. You can drop oil slicks and banana peels and smoke screens behind you so people spin off into the the walls and let you cross the finish line first. My favorite, there's a lightning strike and you can strike everyone else on the track and they all get small and move really slow and you can get ahead. You like that one, don't you, Randy? I know Randy's laugh. It's a lot of fun in a a video game race that you want to win. But that's not the kind of race we've been called into by Jesus. The race set before us isn't one where we want to cross the finish line first or best, irrelevant of our brother or sister. No, it's a race that's designed for us all to help one another cross the finish line together. We're not to lay obstacles and stumbling blocks for our brother and sister as our eyes are fixed on the finish line. We're to help one another get across the finish line These days, there's there's a, a new vocation, being an influencer, right? We are all influencers, whether we know it or not. How you follow Christ, how I follow Christ, will influence how others around us follow Christ, won't it? Your roommates in the house that you share your fellow grace group members as you meet with each other and share life together in between, your core group members, junior high and high school, your children, parents, your spouse, your neighbors next door and across the street, how you follow Christ will influence how they see Christ and how they follow Christ. So first question this morning just is, are you following Christ in a way that spurs them on to love and good deeds? Or are you following Christ either intentionally or through carelessness in a way uh, that trips them up from love and good deeds and following Christ? Have you considered that following Christ, even half-heartedly, just going through the motions, not only is a detriment to you, but to the brothers and sisters that are around you? Or have you thought this morning how you might be influencing a fellow believer to sin against their own conscience as you boldly live out your freedom in Christ, just thinking about yourself and not who's around you? Have you considered that maybe there is hypocrisy in the way you are living not walking in step with the truth of the gospel that might be unsaying the gospel that you say with your mouth and you sing about when we're here on Sunday you know we were also in Galatians in our Bible reading here at Grace if you're following that just a few weeks ago and in Galatians 2 there's this stunning example of what Jesus is talking about let me read it to you Galatians 2 11 through 14 Paul is talking about the church in Galatia, and he says, when Cephas, Peter, uh, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. All right, what was Peter doing? Well, before... Certain men came from James. Certain men that we're going to hear were part of the circumcision party. These men came into town, and before that, it says Peter was eating with these Gentile Christians, but when they showed up in town, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Look what happened. And the rest of the Jews, Jewish Christians, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? See the stumbling blocks here? Peter's hypocrisy, motivated by fear of man, was shooting turtle shells in both directions. These Gentile Christians, probably new believers, are enjoying meals together with Peter and the others, and all of a sudden, through his actions, Peter is saying to these Gentile Christians that trusting in Christ alone is not enough. Because you don't act in these other ways like Jews, you are unclean and not worthy of me sitting at a meal together which is a false gospel. It's the reason he wrote the letter to the Galatians. He's unsaying with his actions what he's saying with his mouth. But it's worse. The Jewish Christians around him follow his lead, even Barnabas, and they join him in participating in Satan's work. And Paul calls him out, which we're going to get to in a minute. It's, It's the next instruction that Jesus gives us for exactly what Jesus is warning about here. Don't be one through whom temptations to stumble come. Back in our passage, then Jesus adds an or else. By the way, every time Jesus gives an or else, he does so in love. Every or else, every warning of Jesus is a warning of love. But he adds an or else. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves in verse three. But verse two is the or else. A fate worse than death, he says, awaits those who do not repent of participating in Satan's work in leading my little ones away from me into sin. Read it. He says, verse two. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. In other words, not just a fate worse than death, a fate worse than a really horrible death. <laughs> a millstone tied around your neck. Raise your hand if you've ever seen a millstone, like in real life. I mean, real life, not Google image. I'm impressed. That's more than I imagine. We don't te- tend to see millstones around in our day, but here's a a good example. It's the upper one, that big round wheel that that donkey is pulling around in a circle to grind grain. Jesus uses this very vivid image. He doesn't just say, it would be better for you to die. He says, it would be better if one of those were tied around your neck. Can you imagine that thing being tied to a rope around your neck and then you being pushed overboard on a ship? That is terrifying. And it's supposed to be. Jesus wants to to imagine that and hear him saying, sin is no joke. Unbelief is no joke. Leading another disciple into sin and unbelief is no joke. There's a worse fate than that for those who will not repent of being part of that satanic work, which it is. So pay close attention to yourself. So I want us to pause for a minute and ask the Lord, are there any ways in which I'm guilty of what Jesus is describing here, either intentionally or through just careless living? Just take a moment, quietly. Lord, do I need to see myself here? Confess it, and repent, say, Lord, help me. I don't want to be a stumbling block. Lord, help us. So as, as we walk by, with Jesus, don't lead your brother or sister to fall. But rather, in verses three and four, the complete opposite, don't trip them up, but instead, help your brothers and sisters when they, when they fall. When they do sin, help them out of sin, back into following Christ by faith. Help, them, uh, help move them toward repentance And we see this this cycle, this three-step cycle that starts with step number one, rebuke, which might make us feel a little uncomfortable. If rebuking someone doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, that's a whole other issue, right? You probably need to to dial it back a notch. But for most of us, probably the feeling of of taking the courage and and, and confronting and rebuking um, is is off-putting. But he says, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Call it out. Verse 4, he clarifies. I think specifically he has in mind if your brother sins against you, there, there will be times where we need to call out one another's sin, even if it hasn't been directly against us in love. But I think Jesus specifically here is just saying, just, just as far as people, your brother sinning against you, if they sin against you, uh, rebuke them. Don't just brush it under the rug. I want us to think first about the motive of the kind of rebuke Jesus would be talking about. It's love. It's the earnest desire to quickly move to the second step, which we're about to get to. It's the desire that this would be responded to with repentance and reconciliation and restored relationship. I love Mark Dever. I was listening to this last week. He said, um, this kind of rebuke should be I love you in the form of, watch out. This is a loving rebuke. Psalm 141, verse 5, uh, the psalmist says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it's oil for my head, let me not refuse it. Well, the reason that that kind of rebuke is considered a kindness is because it's offered as a kindness. It's offered in love by someone the psalmist trusts and realizes this is help. Why would I refuse this? Before we consider, though, us giving righteous rebukes, I think we need to ask ourselves, are we also prepared to receive them? Are we willing to hear from brothers and sisters who love us at times a rebuke for our own good? So the motive behind this rebuke is love. The manner of this rebuke, then, I think, should also be love, lovingly. That we offer rebuke lovingly. That the tone and the manner and the posture with which we might do this with one another communicates the motive. So we don't rebuke one another by shaming one another. Rubbing their nose in it, browbeating them, or scolding them. We don't exalt ourself in the process trying to boost our comparative righteousness as Rob described it a few weeks ago. No, but in love, we bring it up. We call it out. Jesus also gave us guidance back in Luke 6 that we should, before we even do this, take inventory, right? Do we have any logs in our own eye that we need to remove before we open our mouth to point one out in our brother? But also, even here, I think it's implicit that these rebukes should be direct and personal. He says, if, if your brother uh, sins against you, rebuke him. Don't go to person C, D, and E and talk to them all about it and get some good, wise counsel and try to and, and keep this as small of a circle as it needs to be. Now, there are times, Jesus says in in, in the Gospel of Matthew, that if if that's met with stubborn unrepentance, that circle might need to grow. But at very first, make that as small as possible. Go to your brother directly and and, and, and bring the rebuke, direct and personal. How often do we fail to do this, though? We talk to a bunch of other people about the offense, and we don't go directly directly and, and, and to keep short accounts and handle it quick and soon and personally. I wonder what would happen if we all committed ourselves, I'm guilty of this, to the practice of keeping short accounts and directly and personally and lovingly when we sin against one another and we're going to and we have with the desire that forgiveness, uh, repentance and forgiveness would follow soon. So step two then is forgive. If he repents, forgive him. I think he moves so quickly. So if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That's because that's the hope. The rebuke is given with the eager hope that the response will be repentance. We should be eager to forgive, poised to forgive, not reluctant. We shouldn't forget all those lost parables a few Sundays ago that taught us what is going on in heaven every time one sinner repents, rejoicing. That should be our, our eager desire that as soon as there's signs of repentance, we're ready to forgive. We're saying, that's what we were hoping for. Let's move on. But it's not just our eager response, forgiveness, but it also is our duty Jesus doesn't present this as a suggestion for our consideration. Verse four, he says, you must forgive. You must forgive. Here's why. When you forgive your brother or sister who repents, you are saying to them, Christ paid for that sin. God no longer holds it against you. Jesus suffered for it. So, how could I withhold forgiveness toward you and continue to hold this sin against you for which Christ died and which God has removed as far as the East is from the West, as far as He's concerned? To refuse forgiveness in that case would be sin. We must forgive. In fact, refusing forgiveness can often become, going back to our first point, a stumbling block for others, especially outside the walls of our church. If we evidence the hypocrisy that we love singing about the forgiveness we've been given in Jesus, but we're very stingy at giving that out among one another, it unsays the gospel we say with our mouths. We must forgive. And notice step three which is actually step four and five and six and seven and eight and nine. It's repeat. This should be happening all the time. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, repent, you must forgive him. This demand of Jesus is hard. Seven times is just an idiom, meaning keep doing it. We might say, forgive your brother or sister again and again. If I said you need to forgive your brother again and again, would you assume I mean three times? Forgive your brother. If they repent, forgive him again. And then if they repent again, forgive him again. That's it. No, again and again means don't stop. Continue to forgive again and again and again. As many times as your brother or sister repents, forgive them, and we think, that's crazy. Seven times in the same day, But it's only crazy until we remember, remind ourselves how God in Christ forgives us. Ephesians 4.32 says, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. How has God forgiven you? How does God forgive you? And me, has there been one day of your life that you've not sinned against God At least seven times if not seven times in the same ways and Christ's blood covers it as we repent again our whole Christian life is one of repenting our way forward until Jesus returns or he takes us home and when we repent God doesn't say I don't know this has been quite a lot he says forgiven If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He's just. He won't hold against you the sin that Jesus already paid for. If we're to have any hope of forgiving, we need to remember the mercy of God that we sang about this morning that is greater than all our sin. And we need to understand that as applied to ourselves and it needs to seep way down to those parts of our heart that are prone to resent and hold grudges and uh, be easily offended, and to feel proud and hold double standards. And we need to let the, the forgiveness that God has shown us in Christ transform us in a way that we're eager. And it's our privilege, not just our duty, to forgive. Just briefly, I wanted to apply this in sort of two directions, depending on what chair you might be sitting in this morning as you're hearing this. Maybe this morning you're sitting in the I've been sinned against seven times in the day chair. There's someone who sins against you repeatedly in the same sorts of ways and it's gotten harder and harder to forgive. Even if they've repented and they they acknowledge it and they uh, they confess it and they apologize, it's getting harder and harder. And you might hear this demand of Jesus and just say, this is unreasonable, Jesus. This is unfair. I want to say two things. First of all, Jesus is not speaking of the sin of abuse. I think at times people have suffered ongoing abuse thinking Jesus is calling me to just keep forgiving and just to stay silent, and he's not. Love toward a brother or sister who is abusing you takes a different form. It's not loving to allow that abuse to continue for the abuser, for you, and for anyone else that that person may sin against. It needs to be confronted, and not just directly and privately. Understandably, you need help. If that's you this morning, I want to reiterate what Rob said a couple of Sundays ago. Our elders are ready to intervene, come alongside you, and help bring that repeated sin to an end. Find me after the service. Find any one of our elders. Come to a prayer team person. But with that qualification, we still need to hear Jesus' demand um, with the weight that it carries. If you are in the, I've been sinned against seven times in a day chair, you're probably tempted to want to qualify Jesus' demand even more. And I want to encourage us not to blunt Jesus' words. He wasn't being naive when he said, even if seven times in one day. He knows this measure of grace and mercy is shocking because he's shown us this measure of grace and mercy. He understands that, and he's calling us to reflect it as those who have been the recipients of this shocking grace and mercy. And it just might be that as you extend this kind of repeated, relentless grace and forgiveness, that the person who keeps sinning against you and repenting, God will do a work of greater repentance and, and, and lead them to a place where they no longer sin in this way against you. And as this demand to forgive in a seemingly impossible way keeps driving you back to the cross to recognize how deeply you've forgiven, you're forgiven, how much you've been forgiven, it will have a good effect in your own heart. It will deepen your assurance of your forgiveness in Christ and enable you to forgive like this. Just a brief word for you this morning, though. If you find yourself in the "I've sinned against another seven times in a day" chair, and that's all of us, in, probably at one time or another. But if this morning you're very aware there's someone against whom you you sin again and again, and you've apologized and you've maybe repeated that repentance, I want to lovingly ask you this morning: Is it possible? Have you considered whether you are truly repenting? And maybe this morning you need to pray and say, Lord. I repent of my shallow, short-lived repentance. It's weak, it's half-hearted. Help me to repent in a way that bears lasting fruit, that doesn't need to be repented of again. And then maybe go seek that person out this week. Maybe you live with them. You don't have to go seek them out. And ask their forgiveness and explain your desire to repent in a deeper and more sincere way. All right, those are the first two. As we walk with Jesus, don't lead your brother or sister to fall. Instead, help them when they fall. Number three, don't trust in your trust. Trust in God. Don't trust in your trust. What does that mean? Well, look again at verse three. No, I'm sorry, verse five. Look at the request that the apostles make to Jesus. Maybe it's motivated by this demand to forgive in this seemingly impossible way, but they ask Jesus, increase our faith, which doesn't sound like a bad request, does it? Right? But Jesus, they say, Jesus, give us bigger faith, and Jesus says, here's a little uh, object lesson about the smallest seed you can possibly picture, something tiny, what is he doing here? He's correcting their request. He's saying, you're asking for the wrong thing. He says, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. He's saying that the God in whom we trust can do the impossible. He's not giving spiritual gardening lessons, right? He doesn't intend for us to go out here. I have a palm tree that died in our on our driveway months ago. And a couple of weeks ago, I went at it with a chainsaw, just trying to get it out. Unsuccessfully, there's still a stump there. I wish I could have gone out with my mustard seed faith and just said, palm tree, be uprooted and you know, planted in my yard waste. But Jesus is not intending us to literally go out here and then say, see, Bible's not true right? That's not the point. The point is, the God in whom we trust can do the impossible, like uproot 600-year-old mulberry trees and hurl them in the ocean. God can do that kind of a thing. And he's saying, you don't need really, really strong, great faith. It's not about the grip strength of your faith. It's about the strength of the God upon whom we grip through, through prayer and dependence. I think when we think about faith in terms of the strength of our faith as if it's our grip strength, we're really trusting in our own trust and not trusting in the God in whom we trust, right? I don't know why, but I thought of one of these. Remember these? Maybe you put a quarter in one of these at uh, the Penny Arcade uh, on Main Street in Disneyland, the love tester. Measure your passion, right? Right? I had to look for Google images of ones that didn't have words that shouldn't be up here. Anyway, so you put a quarter in it, if you've done this, and you squeeze that handle as tight as you can, and the lights slowly start moving up from blah and clammy, hopefully up to burning, and what's the other one? I can't even read it from there. Uncontrollable, right? It's bogus, by the way, that, that's not true. And I'm not just saying that because it usually stayed in the clammy and the, and the blah. It, it, it's a gimmick, right? But in the same way, there is no faith tester with God that somehow if I can ratchet my faith up strong enough and get those lights up just high enough, he'll be impressed and then he'll act and he'll answer. That's not how it works. God works with mustard seed sized faith. I want to commend a podcast to you here this week. It's called Compelled, Real Christians, Remarkable Stories. Thank you, Mindy Price. She'll be back in next second service. A few weeks ago, she pointed me to this, and I've been binging it whenever I'm out running or walking or driving. It's remarkable. There's about 70 episodes up on this thing, but... Particularly, I've been admonished listening to these different stories and testimonies from believers that God works wonders in response to mustard seed-sized prayer. He radically transforms lives. He puts sin to death. He breaks stony hearts. He seeks and saves the lostest of lost people. He strengthens his own people to endure unspeakable trials and suffering without abandoning the ship of their faith. He empowers Christians to follow the most costly commands with mustard seed faith. I'll give you, if you're going to go look it up, just two, I recommend listening, like this woman, Hannah Overton, who found herself in maximum security prison with a life sentence for a crime she was innocent of. As a mother of five, her youngest was seven months as she was taken away to a maximum security prison because the evidence that would have exonerated her was suppressed by the prosecuting attorney who wanted to make a name for herself. Imagine wanting to despair and throw your hands up with the Lord. But with mustard seed faith, beginning in a a solitary confinement cell, she began praying like Psalm 37, 5 and 6, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And she saw God drown mulberry trees. She saw prisoners that she shared the gospel with come to Christ, one of whom at one point wanted to kill her. She saw one of the attorneys who had been working the case against her she wrote a letter after a couple of years it took her for the lord to give her the sort of the courage and the and the and the forgiveness in her heart to send this prosecuting attorney a letter that says i've released this the just injustice of this case into the hands of god who will avenge so i can freely forgive you and that attorney came to the prison to meet with this woman For seven years she endured, and finally the justice was brought to light, and she was freed, and she has this ministry to women in prison now that she's established. It's phenomenal, God drowning mulberry trees. The other one, you'll just have to go listen to herself, but Laura Perry, in her 30s after believing the empty lies that surgically transitioning from being a biological female to present as a male would fill the empty void of happiness lack in her heart. And it's the most amazing story. I won't give, give it away. Go listen to it. But through unbelievable events, she ends up not looking for it, but being presented with the word of God in a way that God made her alive with Christ in a radical way. God drowned another mulberry tree. With mustard seed faith, I want to ask us this morning, we, I'm sure if we took the time to just start making a list that we have mustard, or mulberry trees that we desperately long to see God hurl into the sea. Maybe it's freedom from an addiction or sin. A loved one whose heart is so hard toward the Lord that you can't imagine them repenting. Maybe it's costly demands of Jesus that just seem impossible for you to obey and live out. Or a trial that you're suffering right now or trauma in your past that threatens to sink your faith because you just can't imagine how God could mean for good what people have meant for such evil. But the good news is you don't need great faith this morning. Just genuine mustard seed faith will do. Jesus isn't asking to trust in your trust, but to trust in him. And last one, I won't take long. Don't serve him for his thank you, but serve him for his well done. Verses 7 through 10. Don't serve Jesus for his thank you. Why would I say that? Well, look at what he says in this last little parable. He says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, come at once, recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Even if, Grace, you were somehow able to do all that Jesus commands you, Jesus will never be indebted to you. I think everything hangs on the question, the answer to question in verse nine. In in the story, will the master thank the servant for having done his duty, what was commanded? And the implied answer is no, he, he won't say thank you. Why? Because he was doing his duty. And Jesus says the same is true of every disciple. Even if somehow we were able to do all that he commands, and we won't, but even if we were, even still... Jesus would not thank us because we owe him that. And he doesn't thank us not because he doesn't love us, but because he's all sufficient. He doesn't need us. He owes us nothing. We owe him everything. He's given us life and breath and everything. And on top of that, he's given his own life as a sacrifice to turn away the wrath that our sin incurred from a holy God. We will never repay that. If we serve Jesus out of the mindset, Jesus, thank you, you've done so much for me. Now it's my turn. I'm gonna do for you. Sit back, Jesus. We're living for his thank you. To pay him back, like the debtor's ethic. Oh, Jesus, you scratched my back. Now I'm gonna scratch yours. Jesus didn't scratch our backs. He saved our souls. How could we ever repay that? Instead of serving Jesus for his thank you, we're to serve him for his well done, which is different and better. Our service might not merit Jesus' thanks, but it can absolutely please and delight him. I'll give you just one example. Colossians 1.10, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, he wouldn't urge us to do that if we couldn't live in a way that actually pleased Jesus, that delighted him. What is it about this kind of fruit and these kind of good works that um, please Jesus? Well, when it's, it's when these things come from the love and delight that recognizes we're unworthy servants. Not worthless servants, created in the image of God, but unworthy, undeserving. We deserved hell, but Christ died to welcome us back into his kingdom and put us to work in eternally lasting, meaningful ways to be part of his glorious kingdom. We don't deserve to be on God's team, to be included, to be used by God. It's a privilege. So it's our pleasure. But wait, Verse 10 says it's our duty. How can it be our pleasure if it's our duty? And here's what I would say. To say we've only done our duty is not to say we've only served you out of duty. That's not the same thing. Because the difference is this, when we understand that our duty is a privilege that Jesus died to give us works created, planned in advance that we might walk in them. When our duty is a privilege, our duty becomes our pleasure. I want to close with this. This little parable of the unworthy servant this week has blown my mind as I've thought about two other parables of masters and servants that Jesus tells, one in Matthew and one earlier in Luke that we've already looked at. The one in Matthew is the one where the master comes back um, and commends the faithful servants with the words, well done, well done. Good and faithful servant. They were unworthy servants. And the master didn't come back and thank them for having done their duty, but he does come back and say, Well done. And in Luke 12, the parable that came to mind is the one where the master returns to find servants who are awake and eagerly serving him and waiting for his return. And he does what this parable in Luke 17 seems to imply he never would. In that parable, Jesus, the master in that parable does what Jesus one day is gonna do when he returns. He will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Not as a thank you, but as a well done. It's Jesus saying, you you walked by faith. You treasured me. You knew that you could never have served me in any pleasing way until you understood that I serve you as the servant king. But understanding that, your duty became your privilege, which became your pleasure, and that magnified my mercy. It showed my grace and glory to others in the world. Enter into the joy of your master. That is worth serving Jesus for. That's way better than a thank you. So as we walk by the way together with Jesus, let's pay close attention. Let's let's not live carelessly, Grace. Let's pay close attention to the way our following Christ will influence others around us. and Let's not make them stumble. Let's help one another when we fall. Let's be quick to keep short accounts, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. Let's remember our faith is about the God we trust in, not the greatness of our faith. And let's then pour out our hearts to him and wait for him to act. And finally, let's serve him like we just said, not for his thank you, but for his well done. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, help us. None of these things come naturally to us, these ways of living, but by your spirit, these new desires you put in us. Lord, um, help us to live lives that are fully pleasing to you, worthy of our calling, bearing fruit in every good work. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. amen.